The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. You're listening to the Irish Times Inside Politics Podcast. Hello, you're very welcome to the weekly politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Today we wanted to look at something that gets discussed surprisingly rarely in Ireland, and that is political conservatism. Surprisingly, because you will often hear the view expressed, rightly or wrongly, that Ireland since independence in the 1920s has been an inherently conservative country. We're joined today in studio by Jane Souter, lecturer in politics and media at Dublin City University, by Eamon Delaney, who's an author, journalist and commentator, and is also director of the Hibernia Forum, which is an Irish think tank which works, and I'm quoting here, for free prudence, prosperity and equality of opportunity and also offers to lend a voice to the individual in an ever-increasing state. And we are joined on the line from the US by Jay Cost, who is an elections analyst, political historian and pundit who writes for the Weekly Standard, which has been described as a redoubt of neoconservatism and as the neocon Bible. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. I think it's fair to say that almost irregardless of the finer points of policy, we, we, we all find ourselves looking across the Atlantic right now at the horror show that is the unfolding Trump campaign and can't help asking what the hell has happened to the grand old party, the Republican Party? What's it done to itself? Jay, if I could go to you first, you are very welcome to the show. Yeah, that is... (laughs) We're asking the same question over here, I can assure you. Um, You know, unlike most European democracies, American politics is dominated by only two major parties, despite the fact that we have, you know, 320 million people in the country. So all sorts of various factions... Um, have to coexist together. Um, And conservatism, you know, sort of a small government, individual liberty, open society, ordered liberty kind of conservatives, have to really coexist with other factions in in the Republican Party. So, for instance, there's a pretty sizable business interest, uh, which is, while it's numerically small, it finances Republican politics. And they naturally have quite a bit in common with conservatives, but there, there are important differences. On the other end of the spectrum, you have a large base of voters that, when you know, push comes to shove, will sort of, you know, even though they express commitment to conservative principles in practice, they're not really small government voters. They vote their material self-interest, which would be to keep their taxes low and or to increase social welfare benefits flowing to them. Um, and then 
on top of as if that's not you know enough of a challenge on top of the the sort of the inherent diversity of the parties we also have separation of powers which means it's very difficult to get things done in our system of government by design um, it's very hard to get things done and uh, voters uh, all across the spectrum usually don't price in how difficult separation of powers is by separating the executive from the legislative and then separating the legislative into two branches really makes it hard to get things done and it lends itself to voter frustration voters get very frustrated because they don't understand why things just don't happen uh... and trump has really sort of tapped into into all of this so on the one hand um, he sort of has a, a, a non-ideological appeal over here um, in that he as presents himself as a, as a businessman who can make big deals and make things happen. He's tapping into this sort of natural frustration uh, that American voters often feel. Um, and then, but then on the other hand, he's really promising um, a, a type of conservatism that is really about uh, social welfare benefits and protection of the certain classes of voters who are in the Republican Party. So he talks about not touching entitlement programs like Social Security and Medicare, uh, and that resonates with Republican voters who are increasingly senior citizens. But then he also talks about, you know, restricting immigration, which is a, which is in our country is a, is a, putting aside the merits of the case, there is a nakedly partisan calculation because most immigrants will be expected to vote for the Democratic Party. So that's, a, that's something that makes Republican voters very nervous, and Trump has tapped into that. And, he, and that coalition that he's formed on the Republican side has really left, um, you know, the, the sort of ideological conservatives such as myself um, on the outside looking in. And and also many senior members of the Republican Party, for example, a, a classic example is Paul Ryan, who's a who's an ideological conservative, who is going along just about, going by the pained expression on his face every time I see him on the, on the telly these days, going along really on the basis that with a Republican president in the White House, even if it were Donald Trump, you know, the, the nominations to the Supreme Court are assured, um, you, the, you know, you'll hold on to the Congress and it will be possible to achieve some of the policy objectives. But it, is, is it not the case that, I mean, looking at Trump, that he represents a kind of a, a, an ideological rupture? I mean, you, you, you refer to his coalition, but the Republican coali coalition itself, the coalition of business, of evangelicals, of people with conservative values, uh, it seems to be busting up in front of our eyes to an extent. Yes, it does. Um, and one of the problems is, is that over the course of, I would say, the last um, 30 years, You've had a shift of voters from the Democratic Party into the Republican Party. Um, you know, in, their, in, in American political circles, they're often referred to as the white working class, and this is sort of um, um, a, a term that is, you know, fairly descriptive. These would be whites without college degrees who are sort of in the middle to the lower end of the of the socioeconomic scale they're they're not poor but they're they're not rich and they're not really upper middle class uh, these voters used to be loyal democrats they're, they're um, what were called reagan democrats a generation ago they were yeah they were they were reagan democrats um and they and and look a lot of them have a lot of their they were anchored through the democratic party via the labor unions for much of the 20th century, they were members of labor unions or they had family members who were labor unions. And the labor unions uh, exercised a real sort of political control over them. 
Um, but the labor unions, at least in the private sector in the United States, have, have completely collapsed. Um, and the labor unions that are still, you know, powerful here, like the hotel workers or the service workers, these, these sorts of voters aren't in them. So they've been sort of floating. Um, for quite a long time, and they they crossed over to vote for Reagan in 1980 and 1984, but they also voted for Clinton in 92 and 96. But since then, they've really come to join the Republican Party, and they have a different set of issues and agendas and priorities um, that Trump has been able to tap into, but that somebody like Paul Ryan, look, I think a great example of the tension in the party is Paul is, is Paul Ryan's economic agenda. It's a very good agenda for business interests. Um, but it, it also, you know, is an endeavor to reform our social welfare program, which is something that needs to happen for the good of the whole country, uh, but it's going to be a loser for a lot of people who are, frankly, Republican voters. Um, people who are in their, their mid-50s would ultimately enter Medicare in a very different program than what it is, and it, it probably you know, wouldn't be as uh, generous a program. And that's uh, those sorts of people are Republican voters now, Where whereas sort of like 40 or 50 years ago, they would have been Democratic voters. It's a real tension within the Republican Party now. Jane, I mean, this isn't a, a purely American phenomenon. Without oversimplifying it, you can see some of, the, some of the things which Jay is talking about there in the rise of UKIP in the United Kingdom, Front National in, in France, and various other parties of which describe them are described as being of the populist right. But they do share quite a lot of the characteristics Jay is talking about there. They're not necessarily interested in lowering taxes or small government. Their their electoral base is very often um, lower middle class or, or, or white working class. And those parties are feeding into the same kind of concerns and worries that, that, that Trump is in the States. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's kind of, um, so if we, if we look at the sort of 20th century and early 21st century politics, it was easy to kind of go right, left in um, in America and Britain, here France and and so on. And then the the right or the conservatives. Whereas Jay has said the kind of small government, uh, light touch regulation, and so on. But what's really changed is globalization. So those business interests that were that were always part of those coalitions have have pushed for uh, for globalization. And then that brings winners and losers. And you know, one of the, the biggest groups of, of losers are precisely those sort of uh, blue-collar, working-class um, conservative voters and indeed some, you know, Labour Party voters in England and so on. So they're not necessarily always conservative no, formerly voters. members of trade unions exactly. in large manufacturing industries which have so disappeared and if they've been replaced by anything, it's been by lower-paid service lower industries. Paid. And and so so yeah. they, they don't like immigrants immigrants coming in. They see immigrants as, as taking their jobs. They've, they've lost out in this kind of game of, uh, of globalisation. So it's those people on both the right and the left who the new populists come in and target. And in a way, then, what, what it, the, the new battleground actually almost becomes, while the kind of the, there's still an argument, obviously, between people who want to spend more and people who want to, to cut taxes, the old right-left argument, one of the bigger arguments is actually now between open and closed, or as a piece in The Economist had it uh, the other week, between those who want to uh, pull up the drawbridge and those who want to, to keep the drawbridge down. So, you know, the kind of the pulling up the drawbridge, the closed people, they're the, the kind of the Trumps. They're the, the ones who feel threatened by globalisation, who feel that they've lost out 
within the, this new game and they can be right or left and then the politics go in different ways depending on which ones they are. One of the things, Eamon, about, about conservatism is as an intellectual movement since since the 1970s, certainly, I mean, I think you could make a very strong argument that it's been the, the most successful intellectual mm. political movement of the last 40 years. Even most people on the left will argue in mm. a negative pejorative yeah. fashion that what they call neoliberalism or neoconservatism has driven the political agenda in uh, the United Kingdom and here and in the EU and in mm. the United States in particular over the last 40 years. But is it now reaching, is it possible that it may be reaching a crisis point or that those ideas need to be looked at again in a different way? <clears throat> I think it, it might be. I, I think you put it very well. It, it has been very successful and for those of us who'd be happy with that. It's with some dismay that when things seem to be going so well, where even mainstream social democratic or left-wing parties like the British Labour Party under Blair or Clinton Democrats were also going to a conservative pro-business philosophy, where with all of that happening, now suddenly conservatism hit, hit the wall. I think it's, it's eaten itself, actually. And I think there are a number of reasons f for that. Uh, as Jane has said, we have globalisation, we have war, we have immigration. These are all many multi different aspects. So we, ha we have to kind of almost take them one at a time. But just in terms of the US, and I was very interested to hear what, what, what Jay uh, gave us a very interesting outline there. I think in the US, they, they rode the tiger of the Tea Party, the modern Republican Party, you know, um, and the, and the tiger has consumed the mainstream Republican Party. And I, I think it's a really sad and dangerous situation. I mean, I remember um, hearing Peter, um, I can't remember, he's a great fan of the Irish Republican movement, um, Peter Quinn, I think, in New York on TV, warning that the people who had a rhinos campaign, Republican in name only, was what they called them. So they'd get rid of, displace all these sellout Republicans that be careful what you wish for because you will destroy your own party. And I think that's what's come to pass. And so the Republican Party seems paralyzed. And instead, we have this showman, provocative figure, Trump, who doesn't seem to believe necessarily in everything he says. And it's just filling uh, a, a big vacuum. And, and the media, we must come also later to the idea of media showmanship and attention seeking above all other well, values. Well, indeed. And I think, that, and right. I think that, 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 that is definitely part yeah. of what's going on. It's uh, like above a, values of left and right. Grotesque yeah. media, exactly. media show. It's so right. it's like advertising works because people are talking about you. We saw a bit of that in the Brexit debate as well. And that, that is another strand of it. But just, just to answer your question, I, I, I think, I, I mean, for Conservatives, like myself or, or, or other countries, there's still great hope. You know, the, the disciplined, modern, pro-business, low-tax, anti-nanny state conservatism still exists. Um, unfortunately, there are these awful phenomena also coming from the right, such as anti-immigration, such as anti... Um, which is a nationalistic... Jay, can I, can I ask you about, about that and um, what, what, what Eamon's just been saying there? Because one of the things that strikes me, as he was saying, is that... Some of the, the grotesque, unbelievable, bizarre stuff which Trump is coming out with at the moment does have its seeds in the reaction of the Republican Party to the election of Barack Obama in, in 2008 and things like the birther movement, which, of course, Trump himself mm. was very prominent in, but also a kind of a broader, very aggressive, almost quasi-violent use of language, a, 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 an argument of illegitimacy on the part of the Obama, of, of the Obama presidency, and that maybe that, that fed into... What's seems to me to be a very kind of a coarsened kind of political discourse in the United States these days. Well, discourse in the United States has always been rather coarse. Um, you know, the first, uh, the first uh, 
democratic, truly popular election we had pitted John Adams and Thomas Jefferson against one another in 1800. And they were co-authors of the Declaration of Independence and lifelong friends, and it didn't stop the one side from accusing Jack Jefferson of being a godless Jacobin and and the other side from accusing Adams of being a crypto-monarchist. So we, American politics has historically been very rough and tumble. Uh, the la, the, and I, in a, a lot of respects, I think that one of the things that maybe blurs our perspective of that is that it was relatively placid for the post-war period, uh, very robust economic growth, and there was sort of um, – you know, immigration levels were, were pretty low in this country. Um, but, you know, what, what happened is, you know, we've had the country has grown increasingly diverse over the last half century. I mean, for starters, we've had a very large influx of immigrants, particularly from the southern hemisphere and, and predominantly, um, you know, Latin American countries. And also African Americans, um, you know, they were given the right to vote in the, well, they were given the right to vote. They won the, let's say they won the right to vote. <laughs> yeah, it was secured for them and vouchsafed for them uh, in the 1960s. But it was only recently that African Americans started voting in numbers commensurate with their population. So what we've had is an electorate that has suddenly gotten substantially more diverse. Um, on a on a racial line and on an ethnic line, and then compounding that, we've had this economic slowdown, and so that has lent itself to, um, you know, a kind of uh, just natural polarization. And I think that you know, and the Obama presidency, uh, I think, has probably, uh, undoubtedly, I think, has has lent itself to that polarization, not not through any actions of the president himself per se, but. You know, the, the birther movement was, you know, um, uh, an example of that. But, you know... I mean, the, the, the birther movement essentially was, was, a, was, was a coded form of racism, wasn't it? It, it absolutely was. And, you know, but the, the, the flip side of that is, as somebody who was not, it was never in the birther movement and found the birther movement repellent, um, you know, I... I I also, but who is nevertheless an opponent of the Obama administration? You know, Obama was very expert at using the the, the extreme politics of the birther movement to his own advantage, um, and sort of, you know, trying to tie all conservatives to the birther movement. And Obama, as a president, rhetorically. And that is an approach that he usually takes where he tries to um, tie all of his opponents to the most extreme examples and the ugliest examples on, frankly, our side of the, our, our side of the aisle. And it lends itself to a, a, a toxic political climate. And, you know, you, you have the most reasonable, responsible uh, members of the Republican coalition in, in Congress who are, frankly, barely on speaking terms with the White House because there's just so much bad blood. Um, and I, I think that a lot of that has to do with, um, you know, factors that are outside of anybody's control. And then a lot of it also has to do with styles of governance. But regardless, it is very, you know, toxic, um, a very toxic rhetorical climate in the United States right now. What about the point that um, I was reading? Uh, I was reading a piece about um, there's a the movement which calls itself reform conservatism, and I'm not sure what what you think of that as an idea. But uh, just a quote here from it: somebody saying that uh, the American right's biggest problem, both politically and practically, lies in economic policy, where the Reagan era catechism is insufficient to meet contemporary challenges, and where the Republican Party is currently offering a set of policies and slogans that simply are not responsive to the anxieties of Americans who aren't already securely in the upper class. 
Do you think that's fair? I do. I do. I think, you know, a lot of this has to do with the, you know, the moment of triumph for conservatives was in, ni- was in 1980. And there was a lot of, there was a real intellectual ferment on the right in think tanks and places like that in the 70s preparing for this great triumph. Um, and, and the problem, the, the economic problem that average Americans faced uh, in the 1970s was bracket creep. So, you know, tax brackets would remain stable, but they weren't adjusted for inflation, and so people would end up getting squeezed into a higher bracket even though their real incomes hadn't increased. And that's why the Reagan emphasis on tax cuts was so politically potent. Uh, but the Republican Party again and again and again and again has cut taxes over the last 40 years, and it just doesn't have the same political punch anymore. And yes, Frankly, you know, the, the burden of taxation has shifted in this country so that it's overwhelmingly uh, been placed upon the wealthy. So any tax cut now, you know, will look like either a direct payoff to some constituency, uh, like, for instance, a, a tax credit for people with, with children, or it will look like a tax cut for the wealthy. And so ref- what reform conservatism has been trying to do uh, is to change the focus and, and look at things like, for instance, reform of higher education, which I think is a really, I, you know, the sleeper issue in the United States over the next generation, and it, a lot of, explains a lot of the Bernie Sanders vote among young people. How could this cranky septuagenarian win the support of, you know, kids everywhere? Well, you know, these kids are in debt up to their eyeballs. Um, and and they're over-leveraged at a very young age, and they're very scared, and they're worried that they won't be able to make their payments or that their payments are going on their student loans are going to hamper their upward mobility, and Bernie was speaking to that. And reform conservatism is, is, is sort of an intellectual movement within the right to take principles of free market and competition and limited government and apply it to problems uh, like that. Do, Jane, do you envisage a kind of a, a new wave of conservatism coming out? It's not just in the United States, but 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 more broadly. I mean, other, in other words, has the movement we're familiar with over the last generation, you know, does it need to be revived for those, of course, who who, who want to see it enacted who, in the first place? Who anyway, want to see it enacted? Yeah, absolutely. I I think it's kind of interesting to to look at in in the different ways because the the two countries that were that we're mostly looking at here, the the US and the, and the UK are both for reasons of their electoral systems naturally going to be Binary con- countries of, mm. of two parties mm. rather than um, countries with multi-party systems. So therefore, if the Republican Party, say, or the Tory party in the UK were to break up, there's got to be a winner and loser from, from which side of it. And if you look at the kind of way the debate goes, some people in, in political science divide uh, voters into kind of two lots. So there's expressive voters, kind of, it's almost like they vote for their football team. So no matter, you know, what they do, they're out, they're supporting that team. That's it. That's what they feel. It's a statement of identity. It's a statement of identity. It's, it's who they are. And um, certainly for a lot of the populace, those are the people who are easier to, to pick off from from the the kind of the the larger ones if you do it and particularly in america was it john steinbeck who said um there's you know the the american working class never see themselves as sort of a proletariat they're always just temporarily embarrassed millionaires Mm. and that's why they describe themselves as the middle class a lot of the time exactly different use of language on this side and that was the social mobility which was kind of Mm. key to the american dream now whether or not it ever really existed doesn't really matter what matters is whether you can make the argument that it did exist and now you're going to bring it back. 
So that's where, you know, let's make America great again. That's what they're doing. That's what, if you, you, you listen to the argument just there for the kind of new conservatism, okay, well, let's bring back social mobility. This is, this is what, be, what people need. And, uh, you know, it's very, very difficult to do that because the main way to get these expressive voters is to actually talk about issues that appeal to their heart, if you like, rather than their head. So guns, abortion, religion, nationalism, all of these things are going to get people fired up way ahead of kind of issues about their tax yeah. or their yeah. bans. It's, it, or, it's true, Emily. I mean, most people don't do things. the policy wonk things. And in fact, yeah. a lot of analysis post-Brexit and of the polls, and I'll ask Jay about this in a minute, and of the polls in the United States say that it's a gross oversimplification just to say this is a newly disenfranchised, you know, white working class. You know, it, yeah. it, 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 it is a more compl- this is a more complex phenomenon. Yeah, I, I, it's, it it's more complicated. Like changes in the media. As yeah, you said, exactly. It's, we're, we're, like, we're in a, the age of complaints. Like, we, we and, and we in the age of the the first wave of social media, I mean, in the last few years. So, you know, I think it's all, and things are much more internationalised now. I think that's what Sanders has really benefited from, actually, a younger international left-wing sense of injustice, uh, which which he's benefited from. But I I just think... um, I just go back to basics here. We've been here before, you know, ebbs and flows, the hard years of Thatcher, Reagan. Then we got John Major and we got a mainstream conservative in the UK. We got the Clinton years. I wouldn't be so sure we're in a transformative period. Um, I think there are lots, there's a a kind of incoherent rage um, at the moment. I think a lot of it has to do with instability uh, created by international war and all that. And let's not forget that it was the Republican Party which you know, we invaded Iraq and with the assistance of the Labour Party in government in the UK. I want to keep going back to those invasions, but they are. They, they fueled what was already an unstable situation. So people are frightened by that. But I just think, you know, I think of Nixon in 72 after the hippie years. You know, people decided there was a silent majority. People do go back to coherent uh, polarities. And I think that they will always be left and right. And if you look beyond the UK and US where those... Uh, boundaries are blurring and, and getting confused and that's why we're all here today to discuss that. In other countries it's actually become more more defined in many ways in Ireland despite the fractious nature that the left is is on the rise. Well, but, well, um, well, well the thing the thing Jay about as, as Jane points there about systems which privilege a, a binary system with two parties as, as the United Kingdom does because of its first past the post parliamentary system and the United States does because of the way in which both congressional and pres- presidential elections work. It, it kind of does or it can in certain circumstances either polarise or, or as, as happened for a while in the United States, lead to a situation where the parties were actually very similar and you had, you know, you had Republicans who were more liberal than Democrats who were more conservative. That seems to have disappeared now. But now what you end up with is, and this does tally with the Brexit thing, is the fact that you have large swathes of your country where people probably feel that their vote doesn't matter because they're not in a swing state and it's just, it's a red area or it's a blue area. And that in itself can lead to a pressure cooker of frustration and anger mm. and a phenomenon which which we definitely saw after the Brexit vote mm. where people said, I just voted because I was bored and I finally had a chance to just kind of mm. kick up the dirt a bit. And there's a bit of that going there, on. Sorry to pick on Brexit, but I think it, it, it yeah, really I is injustice at the margin. There's only yeah. 1% and all those British people voted to remain in. I mean, it must be fuming, that's, you know. That's democracy. But that's sorry, democracy, Jay. Sorry, Jay, you were going to say. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. Look, in, in, in a two-party system where you're trying to, you know, again, the United States has 320 million people, and they all have to pick one side or another, what it ends up being tremendously important for, you know, harmony is, is a process that, you know, integrates those 
different factions into the party uh, in, in the fairest, most judicious way possible. In other words, the primary process within the Republican Party is, is an enormously important process because you know, the ultimate victor of that is going to be one person to stand for 65, 70 million people on a presidential level and on a congressional district level, you know, 250,000 people. Um, and what, what our, one of our problems is, is that, and it's, it's a real irony, because we are a country that, you know, uh, put enormous amount of work and thought and care into our Constitution, which is basically an instrument of, you know, the instrument of government that defines how the government functions and how offices are filled and things like that. Uh, we revere that document, but we, we don't really put a lot of thought into that primary process. And I think that over the years, um, it's been left to atrophy and hasn't really received a lot of care and attention. And I, and I think that, especially on the Republican side, it leaves a very wide swath of voters feeling perpetually alienated by their own party representatives in government. Um, you know, like, for instance, Mitt Romney in 2012 won the Republican nomination with only 51 percent of the vote. And that was after, uh, you know, a lot of that share of the vote was um, dependent upon him winning uncontested contests in, in the later months. You know, so the truth is, is that when it was a competitive contest, most Republican voters were selecting somebody other than Mitt Romney. And you, the same thing happened in 2008. The same thing happened this year in 2016 with Donald Trump. And you get a similar sort of sentiment on the, uh, in the congressional level where, you know, it, you know, grassroots conservatives or whoever feel like, you know, their Republican member of the Senate or of the House don't represent them, but there's nothing they can do about it because of the primary process. And this creates an enormous sort of internal anxiety within the Republican Party. And this, you know, if you look at the favorable numbers of the Republican Party, you'll see that they're typically in the 20s or 30 percent favorable rating, which means Democrats don't like the Republican Party, independents don't like it. But if you're down in the 20s in the United States, that means Republicans don't like their own party. Uh, and it has been this way for, for a decade or so by now. The, 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 the irony of, of, of that is that um, the founding fathers, the most revered founding fathers, hated the idea of political parties and did everything in their power to set up a system which wouldn't encourage the formation of political parties. And here you are locked in with these two parties, which there just doesn't seem to be any way out of them. Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. You know, the, the founding fathers were uh, of the opinion that you know parties are inherently you know the so- social factions that are out for their own interests, and and that the the country needed to have um, you know government officers who were uh, you know working on behalf of the general welfare. And our system of government, the way it was designed, was really a way to realize the general manage social factions without political parties. But they ended up forming very quickly in this country. Um, and, and, you know, look, I, and when you, and a lot of this just shifts the burden, right? The, the burden of managing social harmony into two, in a two-party system, it's not just through the instrument of government itself, through the Senate and the House and the President and all these factions sort of working together in government. But then, you know, with only two parties, it becomes enormously important how the parties themselves are organized and how they resolve internal disputes. And when you have a party, and I think the Republicans, in fairness to Republicans, is that, you know, for generations, the Republican Party was more or less the married uh, white middle 
middle church-going class, right? It was pretty much – there was a real homogeneity to the Republican Party that over the last, you know, 20 or 30 years has really changed as the white working class has come into the Republican Party, and there's a lot of differences now within the party. And the party does not have good uh, processes, you know, good systems of, you know, a primary process or some sort of system to uh, arbitrate between these different factions within the party. And cycle after cycle, there's a large swath of, of the party that feels unsatisfied, and it creates a climate of distrust. I mean, you know, people are willing, you know, Republican voters, if you talk to average Republican voters, they're willing to place all sorts of blame, put all sorts of calumny upon Republican leaders in Congress for things that they have no responsibility for. And there's nothing that can be said to these people because they just don't trust their own leaders. And when partisans don't trust their own leaders, that is a recipe for, for anarchy and chaos. And it's exactly the sort of climate that uh, somebody like Donald Trump has been able to... And I, and I wonder, Jane, because you, you're an expert in, in media as well, how much of a contributory factor to that is, first, the rise of talk radio, cable TV, and then more recently the rise of social media as being important instruments through which politics is expressed and discussed? Yeah, I think, I think that, that that has been important. I think it's been enormously important because it, um, you know, I mean, first of all, you need, uh, you know, a, any kind of modern party re- requires a, a party press. I mean, it was one of the first things that Madison and Jefferson in our country did when they decided that to form the first American political party was they they started a newspaper. You need something like that. Um, but you need a newspaper, you need a party press that's responsible for and cares about the interests of the whole party. And when you and the, the challenge that we have with talk radio and 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 cable news um, is that they're responsible to you know their stockholders. They're private companies, and there's been a growing alacrity among conservatives such as myself that, you know, these p- p- these partisan outlets, talk radio and cable news, are really chasing ratings rather than the good of the of the party, and that they have been, especially with regards to Donald Trump, the criticism that people like myself have laid down is that the people who are in charge of setting the message of the day at talk radio and if, and, it, and it, frankly at Fox News have have you know not represented fairly to their viewers uh, the problems with the Trump candidacy that they always make him look to be better than he really is um, and that this has been this has been a godsend for their ratings. But it, it has been terrible for the party. But not, and, and not very good for the country either. I would, Jay, I want to bring in Jane, Jane Souter here on, the, on, on this as well. I mean, we, we have a different media landscape here, but I look with fascination at the American landscape. And one of the things that strikes me is that it was actually far more conservative than ours, with a small C, not politically conservative, but, you know, very buttoned up in terms of the way that it, that it covered political issues. So what happened was there was a sort of insurgency, first of talk radio and then of cable, of, of cable and that these channels tapped into a market, call it that, for for anger, for unabashed partisanship, uh, for playing around with the idea that you know, you know, fair and balanced might, mightn't mean what you might say it was, and 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 then I suppose social media has amplified that as well, Jane. Yeah, absolutely. So the the traditional media, the tr- you know, traditional American journalism. I just actually ordered a, a textbook today about the principles of American journalism, 
and, uh, you know, interested to, to see where it's going. But, you know, there's very much, as Jay says, two different landscapes. That, so there's the, the traditional media and their online outlets. So, the, you know, the Washington Post or the New York Times or, or whatever, which still the, the, adhere... The, the, the failing New York Times. Yeah. Know, we're required to describe it as such. <laughs> who, who still um, adhere to, you know, the the sort of the values of, you know, it being important to democracy and to hold people to account and impartiality and and all of these things. And then, of course, the, the talk shows and Fox News in, in particular operate in what we now call um, a post-truth environment. But the, the thing is, they haven't just been doing this since the, the rise of Trump. You know, they've been doing this for the last 10 or 20 years. And one of the problems is, I think, that... Um, Republicans felt that it was actually doing them some good, that this kind of, you know, poison discourse and this kind of rhetoric was 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 going to help them in their battle against the Democrats. And, you know, as Jay keeps saying, you know, help the party. But in effect, the role of the media isn't really to 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 help the party, even if you're slightly skewed one way or the other. The role of the media should be in the interests of, you know, society. Although very often the role of the media, as as Jay says, is to make a book, and it's increasingly hard to make a book exactly. in the media these days. And then when you look at when you look at Fox News and you look at and you, you listen to some of the the shock jocks and, and so on, then they they operate in in this environment where nothing anybody says can be true. And so it can even come back to climate change. You know, some Republican leaders, knowing full well that climate change was real, chose to say no, it's not real. You know, don't listen to yeah. to the experts because there was there there was money involved, and now all of this kind of coarsening of the debate, all of this kind of um, natural questioning of uh, of experts and so on, and you know, not being able to believe, con- going into conspiracy theories, and that kind of thing. Like I, I was just saying to. Um, to somebody I met from one one of my classes there earlier, you know, who are these uh, Trump people who are actually going to believe that this is a media spin, you know, the latest kind of headlines about the Ukraine and Trump's manager and, and, and yeah. yeah, and so on. You know, what rational person can think that that's actually a media spin? But the point is that those people have actually been brought up to believe in conspiracy theories that you cannot trust anything that anybody says. And therefore, what they do is they can believe in a Trump who, in effect, is like a game show host. So yeah, I've he's seen a reality I've, I've seen TV it described as, as, as a reality TV show sure, called sure. Trump for President. Well, so exactly. And, quite, and, quite and people are just waiting for the next episode. Mm-hmm. So they don't actually deal with it in terms of what they expect of politicians, good or bad. It's, it's just like the next episode. There's, you know, you're waiting on Netflix for the next night, for the next episode. And, you know, you're just involved. Oh, in even this better. Kind of there's, there's bound to be a tweet within the next hour. Yeah, or so. exactly. Hey, yeah. Yeah, just, just going back to the conservatism thing, one thing that has, has not been sufficiently examined, especially in relation to Brexit, but also America um, and, and Trump and, and likewise, there is a potentially large division on the right between nationalism and free market principles. So, and I would be in the latter camp and the reason for Hibernia Forum uh, being set up was really out of the, uh, the genesis of being pushed to do so by the Americans for tax reform, Grover Norquist, who pursued low tax agenda that Jay has just described there. Um, uh, and they're our friends. But th- I know that they privately, they couldn't be public about it, were appalled that people on the f- fellow people on the centre right in the UK pushed for Brexit because the single market was the free market. So what you're seeing now is Trump appealing to people for protectionism, for padding uh, of 
welfare culture, protecting trade unions and old work practices, rather than if you're a believer in Adam Smith and, uh, and Hayek and, and those of us who are, that actually the market should be allowed to flourish and that's what prosperity in a, you know, uh, throughout the world. So that, that's a real dilemma and it hasn't been sufficiently addressed. And in the EU it's a dilemma because although people on the left think the EU is a a great you know, right-wing conspiracy and, and people on the right think that it's, oh, it's a left thing. That's, it's actually socially liberal, but single market and anti-pro-competitive policies are at the core of the EU. And it's something that the right's going to, get its head, going to have to get its head around or else to be a division. I want to dig into that a bit more yeah. on what it means to Ireland in a minute. But, but, but Jay, just one last question about the United States. If, as seems most probable, Trump goes down in flames in November, what does that mean for the Republican Party? A lot of bloodletting. Um, it's going to be an ugly infighting. Um, and, and look, you know, po- political parties lose by large margins all the time. You know, I mean, John McCain lost by seven points in 2008. You know, Bob Dole lost by nine in 96. Mondale, Dukakis, Carter all lost by large margins in the 80s. Uh, what will make the tr- – if Trump loses by a large margin, uh, what will make this uh, unique – um, is that this is an election that, if you if you look at the macro conditions of the country, the amount of time the Democrats have been in an office, been in office, Obama's general standing with the electorate, uh, the rate of economic growth, things things like that. This is an election that the Republicans should win, or if they don't win, it should be a very very close election. So if anything off of 50-50 is basically going to be the Trump effect. So if Trump, for instance, loses by, you know, 10, 10 points, 7 points, 8 points, that's going to be uh, the Trump effect. And, and I think that, you know, look, if he loses by a margin like that, uh, it is going to be very bad for the Trump boosters and talk radio and Fox News. I think their reputations are going to suffer a hit. On the other hand, if the election ends up being close um, and Trump loses – then I think people like, frankly, myself are, are going to be blamed because, you know, um, you know the, we- the Weekly Standard has been very anti-Trump and, and refuses to board what we've been euphemistically calling the Trump train. We're not getting on the Trump train, and we've been we've holding out, and we continue to hold out. Um, we, we're the skunks at the Garden Party. And if it's a close election, if Trump loses by one or two points, um, then we're probably going to be on the receiving end of the uh, – of of the inner party, you know, recrimination. So, so you're rooting for so you're rooting for Hillary. Uh, I I you know my rooting interest. I don't have a rooting interest in this. It's like watching two football teams that you don't neither of what you like. Um, you know, uh, so that's sort of I don't really have a rooting. By professionally, I suppose Hillary probably helps me, but I, I I I'm no fan of the Clintons and have never been a fan of the Clintons. So I, I I've just decided to resolve my inner conflict by I'm going to vote for personally vote for the Libertarian Party and just see what happens. And thanks very much indeed to Jay Cost for joining us. Remember, you're listening to the Politics Podcast from the Irish Times and you can subscribe to this weekly podcast on iTunes. And it's really great if subscribers take a moment to rate or review the show. We'll be discussing the Irish context after this. And Eamon Delaney of the Hibernia Forum and Jane Souter from DCU are still with us. So in, in, the, in the words of the stiff Skibbereen Eagle, I think, or maybe in a very, putting the narrow focus of an Irish newspaper on, on it, Eamon, what the hell does this all mean for us here in, in, in our own lives? One of the things that struck me when thinking about this, as I said at the outset, was that Ireland is a pretty conservative with a small sea country. Some may disagree, and I'm sure they will, but it has been historically. It has had two large centre-right parties essentially governing it for most of its history. I mean... 
But on the other hand, you would be really, you'd find it really hard to go out and find a TD or senator who would describe themselves as a conservative or on the right. Yes, exactly. It's it's uh, a particularly Irish phenomenon. Well, it's a particular, I'm sure there's other countries have something similar. Countries like Israel, countries that have been, I'm thinking of some European countries, have been for a paternalistic co- uh, culture, a Gaullist type, one one party suits everybody. You can have either Fianna Fáil or you can have Fianna Gael. Fianna Gael, more Christian Democrat. Fianna Fáil, more populist, but ultimately conservative. Uh, so but neither of them describe themselves as such. Or at least no, the vast well, majority not now. Of the this is well, something that again should be charted more mm. is the move of these two parties to the left, you know, or to a, to a kind of, if not an ideological left, certainly a high spending, uh, you know, very public sector culture. Uh, I mean, you look at the Leo Radker increases in the pensions and welfare culture being linked to inflation. I mean, it, there's very little in those two parties for people speaking up for entrepreneurs, for free market economics, even for libertarianism. We have some nanny state proposals today and cigarette machines. So I don't want to get bogged down in detail, but just standing back a bit. Yeah, we've had a two part. They used to say about Ireland, it was I talk uh, left and I do right. Um, and that was more true for decades, where Irish people would be like, oh, yeah, I'm actually very, you know, Irish Times <laughs> readers are probably possibly perspective on that. I'm not being smart, Alec, but genuinely. Feel you know, free to be smart, you know, Alec. But, but you know what I mean? Like low tax, actually, you know, when it came, we were actually were quite conservative and certainly on social issues. So remember, mm-hmm. we're dealing with both social conservatism and economic conservatism, and they're two quite different things. But let's just say on both of them, it used to be that people would be. Uh, you know, we make all the the, the left sounding noises, but actually, look at the Celtic. We we'll actually lean to the right. And yeah, very much. Cuts. So we're they, we're very pro American. Shannon is open. Um, you know, you know, low corporate tax, which all parties, including Sinn Fein, are supportive of. So, but I think that's changing now. I think there's a new hard left energy, and also, as I say, and this is where I despair over the Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil have gone so far into the centre that I mean, what Michal Martin has said himself, I want to take the party. Left of well, he did, and he did said that before the election. One of the things that completely confused me about the election, Jane, was that the way it was presented was that Fine Gael had uh, market researched a, um, a a program for government or a manifesto, which was essentially uh, was was promising was promising certain tax cuts, uh, was promising favouring tax cuts more than than expenditure, and was you know looking towards people's wallets in a classic kind of conservative uh, right of centre point of view. But analysis of those manifestos after the election actually showed that the Fine Gael manifesto was of anything uh, as centre as centre left as, as Fianna Falls one. So it was all in the marketing, really, rather than the reality, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, it? and it always has been. There's been very little ideology in in Irish party politics. Uh, Politicians since, will tell you they think this is a good thing. Since, right, is it? Yeah, since the, since the foundation of the stage. What depends whether you like ideas? Um, you know, rather than pragmatism. So obviously pragmatism has its place, and in politics, you know, you, you need pragmatism in the end in order to be able to uh, make the compromises ne- necessary to get uh, to get legislation passed. So there's no point being totally idealistic mm. and not getting anything through, you know. Um, so so the so there is a balance, but we're so small, I think, that we haven't really. And also, I wonder whether there's something about, you know, um, De Valera and you know the we've heard a lot about all everybody else kind of. 1916 and that that whole period where there was so much 
ideology there. And then there was the kind of stuff about the idealised nation and the crossroads and, mm. you know, all of that kind of thing. Whether we then became a little bit wary of, of that... And because of the failure of the De Valera project in the in the thirties through the fifties, too much ideology, you think. too much yeah. ideology, yeah. and yeah. just yeah. you know, it's just easier to kind of you know just paper paper over this. So actually, Richard Sinnott has a really interesting graph in a book that he did in um, I think almost fifteen years ago, where he actually plotted uh, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael since nineteen twenty two on right on the right left. And you can see that in some election periods, Fianna Fáil is more right wing than Fianna Gael in terms of what they say they're mm. going to do. And in other periods, then they swap back. So basically, they've been swapping backwards and forwards over the, the centre, tending more to the centre right than to the And to probably the for left. other reasons, such as external factors or what state the mm. economy yeah, was in. Yeah, exactly. And, and you uh, know, whether you're going to open borders, like in the in the Lamas period, it would have mm. changed then. So, you know, th- 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 this kind of pattern of holding around the centre, saying one thing, doing another, is something that we've been doing to a greater or lesser extent since the, uh, since the 1920s. And that's, I think, the one thing that they were determined to hold on to this time, which was... That to have that, you know, one or the other means that the centre holds, which is what they wanted. Whereas if they'd gone into coalition together, of course, then the the opposition might not have been I so, suppose in one such of the, a centrist I mean, the, 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 place. The great, yeah. Or the, the significant historical exception, arguably, to that uh, to that description, Eamon, is, I suppose, the 1980s, where in the sphere which has most cultural and political influence on us, the United Kingdom and the United States, you had Reagan and Thatcher in Mm. their pomp. You had uh, an economic crisis here and you had the rise of a party which self-identified as being pro-free enterprise and uh, reduced taxes more than previous Irish parties had been, which was the Progressive Democrats. And the difference, of course, is that because of our electoral system, that albeit a relatively small party, they did have a pretty significant impact Mm. and spent a long period Mm. in government. And and they're their philosophy went into the DNA of the Fianna Fáil. I mean, that's, that's a, I mean, you know, the McCreevy Fianna Fáil, you know, Fianna Fáil are playing, are raising history here, or maybe they're just making amends by moving to the left. But that was an avowedly individualistic, low-tax, pro-enterprise uh, model. And a lot of the principles uh, came from the PDs, McCreevy and Harney be very friendly personally. And also, I see a lot of Fianna Fáilers then felt the ultimate pragmatism will go along with it, you know. So yeah, that always struck me as a, as a sort of particularly Irish version of what happened with neocons in the in the nineteen seventies. Neocons, famously, an awful lot of them started off on the extreme on left, the left as Trotskyists yeah. with a deep understanding of political entryism and various mm-hmm. other abstruse Trotskyist theories, and then applied those to the uh, to the kind of the one Tory movements of the nineteen seventies and took them over. And yeah. the same with the Republican Party. In yeah, because you see, you, you see, so, yeah, you see a pragma- pragmatic kind of vehicle, which would be Fianna Fáil or... So you had in a lot of countries, including Ireland, uh, these large, rather amorphous, centrist, we like a bit of everything for everybody, don't don't upset the horses kind of parties. And then somebody comes along with, uh, you know, a diamond sharp set of ideas, which they're determined to implement. And they can actually have an effect way beyond their, Mm. you know, their political support. Yeah, I mean, the the Greens, they went down the crash of the economic Mm. situation. But if there wasn't a crash, they could have stayed there and they could have been writing. It was like the creature and, you know, inside work 
between the controls or something. But I don't underestimate the cute tourism of, of Fianna Fáil, and I mean that in in a nice way as well. That still exists. Like we find with Hibernian Forum, a lot of people are following us. I mean, supporters and even kind of members and uh, not any particular names, but they're Fianna Fáil people. And I say to them, "But how can you be supporting Fianna Fáil if you're supporting us?" Uh, but like we're, we support Fianna Fáil to try and get elected. These are my real views. But actually, what I put, what we put out there on the shop floor. What we sell is something quite different. And that's one of the infuriating things about Fianna Fáil. Now, Fianna Gael do it as well. I'm uh, sure we look, we support all these centre-right principles. And sure it's all about supporting business and retailers. And But sure, you have to say these things to get elected. And, you know, th- that kind of curiosity still exists. I'm surprised there hasn't been more of a redefining of the landscape after the crash of 2011. Is there a shortage of, of ideas, seeing as you mentioned ideas there, Jane, is there a shortage of ideas around the place, particularly on the on the right of centre, which is a you know, partic- you know, perfectly legitimate position to take the kind of the kind of positions which Eamon is talking about. I suppose on the left you have Task and you have an, uh, one or two other think I suppose tanks. Renewa was, well, I suppose Eamon yeah. is the think tank on the right, but the at the last election, so Renewa were the, you know, the inheritors of the of the neocon ideal in uh, in Ireland, and with, with flat tax proposal, uh, and yeah, flat, you know, and yeah. and you know, then even the, you know, speaking to some of the crime bits, you know, the three strikes and you're out, and you know, the all the all the other kind of various aspects well, of well, it. Well, is that, and I, this I, comes back to what we were talking about—a reinvention of what conservatism is, is is about. I'm not sure where you stood on the three strikes and you're and, and you're out, Eamon, but the reform conservatives in the states, for example, are saying things like, you know, one of the social problems which they need to address because it's it's destroying communities is incarceration. Too quite, many people, yeah. you know. Mm-hmm. So that's a new way of thinking yeah. about an old, you know, the old conservative. Yeah. You lock mm. them up and throw them away. Yeah. The key. I, I would be sympathetic to to kind of certain law and order. Well, less so now personally. I mean, I used to write a lot of law and order stuff, but I can see why that would resonate. I mean, I, I live in North Dublin, inner city, Fibsborough, and you get a conservative working class, you know, and and these people live beside Mountjoy and they had oh, Molly Codlin and John Lonergan on the right airwaves again, but only up to a point. I felt that treat Sykes were out were was a crude. Uh, a cool device. I, I, incidentally, I thought Renewal was poorly, like flat tax, we supported in Hibernia Forum, but I didn't think it was a great seller for an election. I talk about going off on the wrong foot. I mean, and there was a third thing there, I can't remember what it was, like, making parents responsible for kids. Oh, making parents responsible yeah, for kids. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Yeah. They, and then, they were of course, just the, the great elephant, you know what I mean, of the, of the, of the eighth. And, well, you see, you that's, know, and, that, and, but Jane, that's the yeah. big one. You see, that's why I think yeah. you kill Stone Dead because lots of people I know who would naturally have got left to vote for a new are like, no, the eighth can't deal with well, that. Here, see, so that was, here's a funny thing. Back, cons- back to, back to Jay's collapsing Republican coalition. You know, that included includes a large number of evangelicals who are very socially conservative and I heard commentators here for example who uh, who would take Peter O'Brien for example has has said to me that she would look she would see her want a party which is socially conservative but center left in terms of its in terms of its economic policy and equally you might want a party that does, does the other but we have no sign of any of those things at all do we of which they did well we have no sign for example of a of a modern equivalent of the yes no no but if Michal Martin brings Fianna Fáil center left then you'll have uh vaguely centre-left and socially conservative. 
for you as an economic conservative or probably an economic liberal, might be yeah. how you describe yourself, Emma, where what about all that social stuff which gets yoked to this in 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 some political well, areas? I, I, so I so things like re- reproductive rights, uh, I, I think that's, marriage I, equality, yeah, I, I all I, those kinds of yeah, issues. Yeah, I think that division separation is, of church and state. Uh, is that, well, I think that a separation has happened totally. And I mean, for anyone now to conflate in their heads a conservatism which was you know um, social conservatism and all oh, that holy Joe or whatever and fiscal centrism is just wrong you know I mean it is true though and we have this conversation a lot uh, about the fact that we're fighting the same enemy often the um, liberal left wing p- politician who denounces you know oh you're neoliberal economics Hartle also uh, denounces David Quinn and, and, and uh, Diona or whatever so we have some sympathy because we have a common enemy but in, in our group we'd have a lot of people who would, would not have I mean you know some gay conservative gay fiscal conservatives would be the most right wing you can ever get you know um, well, What about the idea then but, that the overall economic project has just run off the rails or run out of steam or whatever it might be and that it's left a, bunch of, it left a bunch of people behind uh, that the new, the new economic landscape in, in places that have adopted these ideas in the United States and the United Kingdom well, for see, example I, I, I would and then we yeah. don't have time for that I would count that whole argument I think this globalisation thing that Trump I, I, I'm not sure I'm not convinced that that has actually res- okay maybe the Rust Belt industries and that but I think a lot, like, globalisation has brought a lot of prosperity to large parts of the world um, now this, it may not, there may be an inequality an inequality but there's no doubt capitalism is a cure for poverty quicker than an institutionalized but socialism. Has it, has, it, but has it partly led to, I'm not going to say caused in the same way as you wouldn't say that Obama was the founder of ISIS, but has it been a contributory factor to this clear rise in um, xenophobia? Yeah, um, possibly. Clear yeah. racism and a lot of other kind of ugly things bubbling up in our society. Well, I, I, I do. Not, although not so much yeah, in Ireland. I do think it, it, it's a, a tremendous challenge for traditional communities. And I mean, my, I myself despair that, you know, the Italians used to make things the uh, you know British manufacturing lovely things lovely toys I see this with my kids when we go into a retro shop all gone it's all gone east so people said to me that's your free market for you you know I mean I went to Blanchestown surrounded by everything was was um, branded and fast food I'm not picking on Blanchestown now you see it's throughout Ireland uh, but you know it was all fast food or whatever and, and foreign brands I felt it was in a part of New Jersey or in Essex and someone said to me Eamon that's your free market for you again that's so, true that's true though, so that it? is true mm. and there, there are questions I have to answer and we as kind of economic conservatives economic liberals rather to use it properly in, in the dynamic sense have to answer but even with all that it's still better than the torpor of a state dominated you know trade union dominated 1980s Ireland where it was just too but like that's political. a kind of you know, that's a, almost a logical fallacy that type of argument isn't it you know what I mean like a, you know setting up a complete false, false dichotomy we either have what we have now or we go back to 1980s torpor okay, do you know well, what I mean like obviously yeah, but, there's but, other well I'm setting it up because people yeah. set it up for me they've said they, people say no Jane people say to me that's your ultimate dream as okay. if I would want it in extreme I, okay. I, I, of course I, I mean there I mean, is a middle I mean, way but, and, yeah. but you have you kind know. of put it I mean that yeah. is the, the, the sort of argument I mean there are other ways there are I mean the Germans for example still have manufacturing um, mm. and they still seem to have more oh, local I, I, shops totally, I'm not totally. saying they're ideal but they, no, they show that, but that there is, are other ways but that to, is, but that's to order was, these things I'm yeah. probably a small C conservative you see I, 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 like in a sense a Mittelsand that wonderful word that describes a family owned uh, entrepreneurial culture in Germany, which are family-owned, and they don't, and the shareholders are not being endlessly rewarded. So they companies aren't being hollowed out. Hollowed out more has been into R and D. Oh no, the Germans show the way. You know they really do. And I mean, I know they're getting a free ride with the EU and all that, but 
but no, I, I, not the extreme version. And Jay, maybe the Amer sorry, just to finish on that. Hmm. Maybe let's see. Maybe the Americans need to answer questions as to ha for having signed up for that model. Maybe that's what Trump needs to say. Maybe they signed up for that. You know. Ultimate, Which model? The, the, the ultimate, the, the, complete, the, 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 the capitalism on steroids, you know, like war. I, I think that maybe they have answers, questions to answer in terms of where they're at. Jane, for now. every um, articulate, uh, vociferous, small c conservative like Eamon, there's uh, 10 articulate, conservative, large s socialists on the left arguing that most of our woes and ills derive from neoliberalism over the last 30 years, globalization and the fact that the country is run by an elite for their own uh, for, for, their, for their own wealthy purposes. Uh, do you think that the kinds of ideas which Jamin is talking about have any chance of getting a purchase again as they did in the 1980s or does that require the kind of crisis we had in the 1980s? Well it's not the kind of more? ideas that, that Eamon has necessarily that want to have a, a purchase again but it's kind of I think the thing is that there's uh, that there's populism on both sides on the on the left and on the right and the populists of the left um, are necessarily anti-elitist and anti-establishment now, you don't have to be pro-elitist or, or pro-establishment, but when you're necessarily that, then what you can do is blame the EU for everything, blame globalisation, blame things that are outside of your control. And it, it's very close to blaming the other. It's very close to the kind of the populist right-wingers who are anti-outgroup. So, in other words, anti-anybody who isn't themselves, the... The, the foreigners coming in. Like if you think again back to the, the kind of the Brexit, the, the racism that drove small parts of it and, you know, was displayed um, on Farage's um, ad of, you know, the, the Syrian men. You know, the EU isn't necessarily going to stop Syrians coming in. You know, the, the it, what people were talking about there was kind of Polish builders you know, mm. and, and not Syrians. And that that immigration was actually driven by um, almost a sort of a neocon religious sort of fervour, even if Blair was part of it. Like, I think, you know, the Blair and the Bush thing, there was definitely a kind of a, a religious overlay to the, their yeah. belief that if, they were doing the right thing in if Iraq. If anything, that, that seems to have de declined somewhat. Yeah. Because if you look at the Trump phenomenon or what's going on on the right in the United States, they're prepared to vote for a guy who, by you know, clearly had, has not been following the Ten Commandments uh, yeah. religiously yeah. over the course of his life and really just seems to make it up as he goes along in terms of these issues that matter a lot to evangelicals like abortion and, and various other issues like that. Yeah. But I suppose the other part, and maybe we should wrap it up uh, pretty soon, the thing that strikes me, we started off talking about Trump is, on one level, it's a joke candidacy. It is like some sort of media spectacle. And w one suspects, you know, that it was a, it, it's something that's just got out of control and he never expected to be in this position and now doesn't He's know, almost do, Jim do, Carrey do, in that movie, isn't he? But the other yeah. part, and perhaps the more serious part of this is, you know, uh, I hate to bring up the Hitler uh, examples, but, you know, people saw Mussolini as a buffoon yeah, as well. And yeah. they saw a lot of these people as a buffoon. And we had buffoons in the Brexit, uh, yeah, in, yeah, in the Brexit yeah, thing as well. Yeah. So it does seem to be a symptom of something. No, I, 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 I mean, just to, I, I speak about it, uh, absolutely, that's the most worrying thing of all. And I think this is the difference between previous years, like the 80s and that, is that... Uh, it's all a bit of fun. Boris Johnson, classy example, you know, a Dintonian rivalry with uh, Cameron. But look at the consequences. You know, years of unstitching of EU agreements with Britain and, and Trump likewise. No, I I think this anti-intellectual, you call it post, post, what was something? Post-truth. Post-truth. It's just, it's, and it's fed by an entertainment. Oh, it's great crack and it's filling up the airwaves. I don't know. Will it come here, Jane? 
Do we have a Boris Johnson or a Donald Trump or a... Do we have anybody like that at the moment? The Healy Race, no. I don't know, is Shane trying? <laughs> <laughs> Shane, we, we, we should just say, and we'll wrap up the podcast, congratulations for Harry McGee for causing Shane Ross to do something. How, how that something's going to turn out uh, remains, remains to be seen, but he's been flying down to Rio and making a splash down there. Listen, we do have to leave it there, but thanks very much indeed for joining us. And that's it for this edition of Inside Politics. Thanks to our guests, Eamon Delaney, Jane Souter and Jay Cost. Thanks also to our producer, Declan Conlon, and engineer, Rob O'Sullivan. Remember, you can mail me at hlinahan at irishtimes.com or you can find me on Twitter at hlinahan. But until the next time, goodbye and thanks very much indeed for listening. 